This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is a professor of writing at Columbia University. She began her writing career as a critic in the 1970s and won the Pulitzer Prize for Criticism in 1995. Her memoir, Land won the National Book Critics Circle Award. Her new memoir, Constructing a Nervous System, is a follow-up, but definitely not a sequel. It's a very different way to explore a life. Thanks for joining me, Margot Jefferson. Thanks for inviting me. So I don't know if you know Mark Maron's podcast, but he often sort of breaks the ice by asking interviewees, who were your guys? Meaning uh, gender neutral, who were your influences and inspirations growing up? And, and that seems to be the sort of the heart of constructing a nervous system. Do you think building a sense of self out of the artists and the public figures that you love is, is a pretty universal experience, or was it particularly intense for you? I'll admit, you know, every writer wants to think that whatever they're writing about, <laughs> the material was particularly intense for them. But in some way, maybe because I, I became a critic, which is that, you know, some form of obsession with mm. <laughs> all mm. that, that experience, whether it's, you know, seriously high art or seriously fascinating ephemera, right? But I do think everybody um, has a kind of personal culture, you know, of objects, experiences, you know, performers, um, again, landscapes, what, that you are constantly, it, it's, you can protect it from other kinds of influence, like this is bad taste, you know, you don't have to go along with that, or this mm, contradicts mm. that. You figure out a way, you know, to make it work inside you, and you're curating. I think we're all curating our personal cultures. It also allows you certain room to get past verbotens. I shouldn't like this. You know, mm. this is out of uh, my whatever designation historically, culturally, but I like it. Why? Yeah. No, that often seems to me almost like the root of criticism is, you know, I like this. Why? And often it's interesting when it doesn't fit into your own sort of theory of exactly. what's good. And then the inverse would be, though, you don't have to do that with your with the personal culture. If you hate it, you can just. But the inverse for a critic is, ooh, you know, I hate this or I'm having a lot of trouble with this. And then if you're interested and interesting, you'll say why. Hmm. And you'll be able to question yourself in that way, or at least come to some interesting, to some real conclusion that the that your readers can take part in and respond to in one way or another, you know, as to why you don't like it, why you're rejecting it. That is a form of self-revelation, but critics need to reveal themselves, too. Those so-called hidden agendas should not always be hidden. Well, I wondered uh, about that, because I wondered when you started writing criticism, were you allowed to write in a, in a personal way, maybe not quite as personal as this, but to reveal <laughs> something about your, your own sort of personal history with an artist or a work of art? Or was there more of a kind of expectation that you had to give like this sort of God's eye authority? God's eye or let's say omniscient narrator. Yeah, yeah. It just feels a little gentler. God's eye. Now, every periodical I worked for, you know, had a kind of, different almost house style hmm. through which you 
filtered that. And some allowed more personal. If you worked for the Old Village Voice, mm. you know, which had writer co- founders, you know, then your personal material was part of the drama. If you worked for uh, Newsweek and The Times, it wasn't. If you wanted to be personal, you, you know, did a different kind of column. You know, yeah. you, you did an almost life experience kind of column. But the critic, in some way, we were still at, at the high, at the better levels. We were um, observing, I guess, that old um, Oscar Wilde quote, criticism is the most civilized form of autobiography. So the belief was right. it would be filtered through and in some way almost purified. Yeah. Uh, now, that could serve a purpose, especially if you were writing about something that was uncanonical, that had been, let's say, uh, you know, um, an underground writer or um, a new black or feminist artist. Then, in some way, you know, to, to bring that style to it was to basically kind of heist it into, <laughs> mm. into, a, into a tradition, into a canon where it could get more attention. But it, there, that's that pull between the the house voice, the collective voice, and style. You know, there were style books often for, certainly the Times had one, I, I'm assuming they still do, and your own individuality. There, there was always tension there, I would say. The you- less you cared for a piece of work, the less interested you were, yeah. the less tension there was, and the more <laughs> bored, <laughs> boring the whole project was then. <laughs> I mean, I suppose in any kind of memoir, a lot of the time you're going back to, you know, to memories of events and bringing your older perspective and perhaps, you know, it's a different understanding to what you had at the time. So when you're writing about... Yeah, artists, it's a dialogue always between what you were at the time yeah. and what you are now. Yes. So how much, when you were sort of writing about these these figures in here, like Ella Fitzgerald or whatever, how, how much of what, you were getting out of them. Did you understand at the time? I tried to document, actually, you know, mm. in in my encounters or portrayals, I really tried to make that part of the narrative. You know, what I'm getting from Ella Fitzgerald uh, when I'm 9 or 10 or 11 is this luminous, you know, and playful and antic and lyric voice that feels, you know, as as idealized as any movie star persona. What I'm seeing, and I'm taking that in too, is this um, woman who, for my little notions of um, bourgeois glamour, you know, she's not charismatic. She's she's dresses well, but she's stocky. She's overweight. She's not giving off um, a kind of um, Lena Horne hauteur, which mm. particularly as a young black girl— you know, I, I wanted. She may be tempting people, you know, back into those stereotypes of laborious black women who are large. So I, I really tried to mm. track both of those, you know, the narrative of loving her, the counter-narrative, and then finding inside her story material that gave each um, more texture, more weight. You know, this, this hard this hard-ass early life that she'd had, uh, which she never talked about, and which most people assumed because the music, you know, was so kind of so lovely. Mm. She knew nothing about, you know, no, Billie Holiday, we knew about her suffering, we didn't yeah. know about Alice, and in some way that meant we were, we often tended to patronize her. Well, what technique, what charm, but she doesn't understand why should she have had to reveal that to us? No, no. Um, withholding can be a form of cling of power. Well, 
like you, but but sort of later on, you know, I initially attributed Nina Simone's is her intense unhappiness to racism because that was something that she talked about. She, it she, was there. That's right. But that's she, right. And she dramatized it and she politicized it. Yeah. But she didn't talk about the bipolar condition, which, which, which I think nowadays people would just say, oh, well, that explains a great deal. And had she said that, people would have given her more space for her behavior. But on the other about. hand, had she said it, she yeah. was between a rock and a hard yeah, yeah. place in the late 60s, 70s. A lot of people would also have said, oh, well, you know, she's she's bipolar. So, of course, you know, when she's manic, she believes in black power. You know, it would, they right, could yeah, have yeah. used it to um, belittle um, or almost demonize, um, you know, her, her politics. But that's so tragic that the thing that you think might have invited sympathy was the thing that she couldn't disclose. No, and couldn't be sure it would, would invite right. sympathy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but also, you know, there was a kind of um, shame um, attached to you know, mental conditions, you know, like bipolar. Oh, she's crazy, you know. She was also in that way kind of confined by the times. Mm. We, we talk about that much less melodramatically oft times now. But also, you know, I see again why she she needed to just personally, you know, protect herself. You don't want to give people. Um, it's not just your fans. Sometimes it can be your enemies. And yeah, she yeah. got more and more controversial. Don't give them material to work with. That can be confining, but I get it. One thing I like in in the book, which resonated with my sort of just experience of being a writer, was that, that when I, you know, as young, almost any writer I liked, I thought, I wonder if I can do that. Yes. And then, <laughs> and then you realize after a point, actually, that, that so much is, is about individual personalities and temperaments. And there are certain things, there are certain, you know, kinds of writing that are just not in your personality. So here you've got people who who you felt perhaps you could you could aspire to and perhaps you could do something like that. But just as powerful seems to be the people that told you what you what you weren't and that they were so the daredevils, I think you described, who were just so wildly beyond what what you what you felt your range was. Yeah. And that that was thrilling. Mm. Um or or terrifying or some combination, you know, of both. And that, you know, that that's that imparts a lot of tension. To, it, to hopefully to the book, but very much also to your to one's writing. Some, what if you try to imitate people that in some way feel threatening and demonic to you? What will that do to your prose? At least in mm. at least in practicing. You know what was exciting to do in this book was to take their words, put them on the page, put them like you know, whether it was F. Scott Fitzgerald or Zora Neale Hurston or Catherine, Nen, Catherine Mansfield or whatever, put them on the page and then in, encounter them, dialogue with them in my own voice and see what composition came out of that. Yeah. And I think when, with, in, in the sort of realm of, of performers that I, I find now that there is a tendency looking back, particularly as certain kinds of, you know, pernicious behavior become more well known, is that people <laughs> often kind of they put them in the heroes or the or the villains box. Yes, yes. And I think in the you know one of the people who is firmly in the villains box is Ike Turner, and it's fascinating that you I think you write about it, it's like foul radiance, which I, which I see. Speaking of stolen, it's in the notes, but not on. I took that from Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. 
What? <laughs> one, one of the figures trying to diagnose this, this right. Mr. Hyde says, oh, is it, you know, is he some utter creature, some, or is it the mere radiance of a foul soul? Right. And, you know, it, it worked. Not only is it a great quote, but, you know, there was this, not only Pygmalion, but a certain Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde persona, and even his relationship with Tina Turner. You know, it kept turning on. He was the the inspiration, he was the mentor, and then he was the monster who chained her in the attic. So it, it, it just kept working for him. But you say that he gave you something you could use. He, which is interesting. He did. At a, I was, I found him as a, as a young girl, as a preteen and then as a teen. Um, you know, I can Tina Turner burst on the scene, you know, and they were, you know, they were hotter and more dynamic than Motown, though I loved Motown, you know, but they were more kind of big city than Stax Vault. Mm. Um, and, they, and she was a knockout, you know, virtuosic and down to earth, um, which can be hard to pull off. Um, but, you know, in those those things, the teenageness, maybe particularly girl teenagers, the always imitating, acting out, you know, these performers. My older sister, who was also a dancer, um, so Tina's moves, insisted when we acted out these 45 R&B <laughs> records that she be Tina. And I always got cast as Ike. And I had to do it over and over. It seems trivial, but I started watching him. And I was, you know, again, those, those years are, that's formative ideologies and manners of sexual of sexuality and gender and i was fascinated by how little he had to do to wield power hmm. you know he was right behind her but he was setting the beat the compositions were hers he would raise an eyebrow he would bring it down again i was somewhat repelled and scared but i thought boy is that interesting that's a vision and you know that's a vision of male power, you know, and I could see, they weren't like Ike Turner, but I could see the boys I was growing up with finding their own, you know, the way you hold out your hand very languidly to get somebody to dance, and she's putting her hand in yours to move out on the dance floor, and you're kind of looking in another direction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I, I, you know, speaking of performative and gender modes that you are wildly out of your wheelhouse, but that you, you sense the power and, and you are affected by their charisma. So finally, you know, I got, I got to do that, embody Ike, try to embody him on the page. I couldn't, also couldn't quite, he was a monster. And, you know, I was, you know, a total feminist when I reviewed her memoir, but he wouldn't leave the chambers of my personal culture. Right. You know, he stayed interesting to me. And so I thought, I work with it. Find some way into this. And, you know, that's actually when I was able to track it back so fully to, you know, a kind of adolescent, masculine resistance on my part, but also a kind of, you know, almost idolatry. Because the idea of what you do with problematic artists, I mean, largely problematic men, is 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 so huge in the culture. And, and yes. I've, I've got a friend who's an academic who, who specializes in Joseph Conrad, and he said that uh. it was quite hard to teach Heart of Darkness oh, God, because his, yes. his students only wanted to talk about race and, like, nothing else. Yes. So when yes. you're talking about yes. Willa Cather... And in this book, you're talking about the kind of the way that she writes about race and her kind of like blind spots and failings and prejudices. How do you teach 
that and not let that become the main thing about her? You know, I haven't taught her since I wrote right. since, since I wrote this, so I can't answer that. What I worked to put on the page. I mean, I called it a kind of procedural, meaning you're collecting all the evidence, you know, and on all sides, was embed that kind of ruthless, I hope, critique of real racism within also the context of what I made no, you know, pretense of not appreciating, you know, which was this vast, all white, but this vast American landscape, this portrait of the artist as a young American woman that she was creating. It's like any other crafted object or sequence. You find a way to make the proportions meet and for one not to cancel out the other. I wanted the banality and the wrongness, the cruelty of Mm. those race moments to inflect to stain, to alter in certain ways the beauties. But I did not want the beauties erased because to to have to live as a reader or as a writer or as an American citizen or a citizen of the world with Joseph Conrad, with both of those, with all of that, you know, including the ambiguities and the uncertainties and the mysteries, you know, that's how a cultural and aesthetic and I think ultimately political understanding truly advance. And so you, you know, Don't you? Or do you think so? <laughs> oh, I know. I think that's the only, it's the only way you can do it. I like the word you use, disappointment, rather than condemnation. You know, there are moments you're going to condemn, but also condemnation doesn't have to be utterly complete. Right, yeah. Exactly. You know, I condemn this. Now, let us see how that is tainting that over there. That's, or let us see how they get separated. And that is very interesting in terms of how we all separate you know, mm. um, what we admire and need desperately from what we don't want to live with about it. And there's another line in there that I really like, if you can't be free, be a prodigy, which is you sort of ventriloquizing, I think, perhaps. It's, I am ventriloquizing two people, um, yeah. which, which was fun to do, too. And again, they got, they got credit. It was a Rita Dove poem about... Billie Holiday, if you can't be free, be a mystery. That was the original line then. um, So something, you know, often particularly with a line of poetry, it settles in your head as a writer. And you, or a line from a song, you just want want to find some way to use it. So you tuck it back and say, I'll find it. This was where I'm, when I was writing about um, Sammy Davis Jr. and James Baldwin. These two, who would have thought it? Um, But there they were. Um, Same time, same generation, prodigies black prodigies of American culture. Very different, but there they were. Uh, And the precocities and the um, almost, you know, with Michael Jackson and his youth virtuosity with which they were supposed to perform race, you know, um, for, and and race talent and eloquence for American culture. If you can't be free, they were prodigious. So if you can't be free, be a prodigy. And they were so alone in their particular, in their starts, you know, the 50s, the early Mm. 60s. They were so alone on that stage. 
You know, Baldwin was the only black writer who was always on every TV talk show, you know, representing the race through that voice of his. Sammy Davis Jr. was, you know, the only black performer, you know, in this or that club or allowed to hang out with Frank Sinatra, (laughs) you know, so that. Because you can sort of admire that that, that brilliance and that virtuosity, but also know that it's coming from, as well as the drive of just being very sort of clever and ambitious and talented, it's almost like you have to go that far to get the respect. Yes, absolutely, that far and further. You know, there is that sense of stretching the band, you know, of effort and um, what's required of you and vaulting always over, you know, being so-called merely human. It always had to be the performance of a prodigy for for both of them. When you were, not to get you to call yourself a prodigy, but when you were (laughs) writing, you know, when you were starting out in, in criticism, did you feel that you just had to be better. You had to be sort of further. You had to be as, as brilliant as you could be in order to get the same level of respect and opportunities as a less brilliant um, uh, Yeah, Yeah, yes, I certainly did. I think this has to do always with the first for whatever sociological, mm. historical reason. You know, so yes, let's say I was the first black arts critic at Newsweek. I was also the first woman, book critic at Newsweek. So, did, yeah, I mean, it wasn't that everyone was saying that to me every day, but, you know, you you know the drill of the society you're part of. Mm. I felt I had to be, let's say, impeccable to brilliant because, you know, let's be real, you're not going to be brilliant every day. But, there's a, you know, even James Baldwin and Sammy Davis Jr. knew that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's a certain high standard that you don't slip beneath because, you know, it's not just a mistake. It's you don't deserve this. And then that could also be seen as working against the next black, the next woman, the next who aspires and applies for this position. So, yeah. And I had been, you know, I'd been taught that. I'd been prepared for that. Yeah. 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 That was definitely part of, as we say, used to say, my upbringing. (laughs) Because in Negroland, you talk about your parents' kind of fascination with Sammy Davis Jr. as well. Yes. Were there many points of overlap between you and Taste? Yeah, yes. Oh, oh, there absolutely were. And they were also a little hard on him sometimes, if they felt, which is kind of interesting, um, if they felt he was overdoing it, being overacting almost, overperforming, showing a kind of desperate wish, you know, to Mm -hmm. excel and be admired. That they found a little embarrassing. Don't try so hard. You know, don't let it be seen that you need this so much. Which was why, um, let's say, some of the more suave black genius performers, like my father's idol was Duke Ellington Mm. and the men in his band, because they were ruthlessly and relentlessly gifted and skilled, but they carried themselves with a certain almost dandyish Yes, here I am. I take me as I am. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott, or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. 
as the introduction to the bit about Ike and Tina Turner, you say Jay-Z is a star and Beyonce is a galaxy. What do you mean by that? And can you apply that to other pairings? There's almost like a cosmology yes. of celebrity here. Yes. In that case, it was, um, you know, Beyonce was the, I mean, you know, he, he's a mastermind. And in that way, he reminded me of a far more self-protective and in that way healthy Mm. Ike Turner. You know, I've got companies, I'm writing compositions, I'm a businessman, I'm an entrepreneur. But, you know, she was, by galaxy, I meant, you know, she was in in a world all of her. You know, people would see her her performances, say, at, uh, you know, the football, whatever, they'd say, oh, my God, you know, she belongs. Someone even said that to me. She's a galaxy. We're all in another None of the planet. You know, <laughs> she had this, um, you know, the beehive, you know, all her fans. It was, hmm. you know, like all the lesser nymphs and goddesses <laughs> safeguarding Diana. <laughs> and, okay, so I saw that moment on the record, you know, when suddenly he turned into Ike Turner. In this hmm. moment when Ike Turner, and everyone knows this from the movie at least, is like threatening her, bullying her. Stuffing cake and forcing her to eat. I thought, ooh, okay, I I get that Ike is fascinating, but why did you need to do Mm -hmm. that at that particular moment, you know, and and do it in front of everybody so we could all see that power reversal? Yes, she was performing the reversal, but it—and it rattled me. And I thought, okay, but it reminded me of how compelling— Ike Turner was. Right, yeah, yeah. Now, I couldn't pretend to myself, I would never have chosen that mm. moment, but I couldn't pretend there hadn't been others. So I thought, all right, this is, this is unsettling to me. This is making me angry. So I'm, but I'm going to examine my connection to Ike Turner and my history, and I am going to thwart, like Jay-Z cares. He's certainly not read my book, but I'm going to thwart, you know, and best yeah. Jay-Z. I'm going to claim Ike Turner and acknowledge all his dark powers, and I'm going to come out of it by also bringing Tina in there. I'm going to come out of it with a different narrative. And Beyonce is a, a you know a current artist, and obviously, as in your life as a critic, you know you have to keep being engaged and fascinated and stimulated by new people who come along. But you know it's often sort of assumed that after a certain age, nobody has that power to sort of of to help you with your self construction. Do you, do you that think that's may, I true? It's an interesting question. I think it can be a little harder after a mm. certain age um, for you, you know, to— that requires—self-construction requires adventuring, and you have to keep— as you get older in your life as a critic, you have to get more conscious, I think, maybe about adventuring, certainly beyond the material that you feel. You know, this is, this is my kingdom. So there's that. Also, you're—you know, you—, you see every new performer through this lens that mm. is, well, what's their genealogy? Who does she remind me of? Yeah. You, versus, oh, my God, I've never seen anything like that in my life. So I, th- I, think, it's, I think it's tricky. You know, when, when Tina Turner was asked about Beyonce, who, mm. who paid tribute to her by performing all her songs very nicely at the Kennedy Center Awards, she said, not with a, with aggressive spite, but with a certain place. She said, oh, there are a lot of little Tinas out there. Now, Beyonce deserves more than that, though I can see why Tina didn't want to give it yeah. to her at that moment. But, you know, the Tina legacy is is there. So I'm when I watch her and 
you know, she's done, she's always watchable, and sometimes she's fascinating. It's kind of comparing, holding those two lenses up. What is she able to do now in terms of the material, its content, its form, her dancing, that really wasn't being done in that way at all yeah. when I was coming along? And if she's redoing, how's it changing? How, you know, a, a redoing is often a remaking, you well, know, and that's interesting. Because I, f- I find that one of the things that can be quite de- depressing among, you know, fans and followers of art and particularly music after a certain age is that oh, everything reminds you of something else. So everybody's just like, oh, it's just uh, this it's, again. I know. It's, it's, it's so exhausting. It's so dreary. And, you know, when you feel yourself, you hate hearing it in somebody. You hate being lectured in that way, which we all have been. And you hate being tempted to do it. But I think, again, it, it, you have to be much more conscious about that. You know, the sa- in, it's like an inversion of what you were saying about your friend's students. Mm. I only want the evil in Joseph Conrad. Well, we've got the reverse, um, you know, at a certain point. It's the, um, the golden age. Yeah. It's the golden age sentimentality <laughs> and nostalgia. No, it's, you know, part of you has to... Open yourself up physically, emotionally, intellectually to the here and now. But that also means you're you're more at its mercy. Well, that you know the tendency to to again bring even if it's autobiographical, bring the authority of your past to something. It's very can be very comforting. Because what what comes out of the book is is the historical context of sort of what was allowed and therefore yeah. the power of going beyond what was allowed. Changes, of course. So if you're talking about a certain sort of sexuality or androgyny mm-hmm. or even just homosexuality in, in sort of black artists, it's like, well, Prince was in a different time to Little Richard. Yes. And now you've got artists now who are in a different time, time to then, Prince. Then Prince. So saying they're just the latest iteration of that doesn't make sense because there's all this other stuff. Exactly. Going on. It's as if, yeah, it, I mean, history proceeds as much and changes and, um, you know, the landscape of facts and possibilities and styles. Changes constantly. So that's right. That's right. You could even include, you know, you've got Little Richard, you've got Prince. Even though he was a denier and in some ways a pretender, I would say Michael Jackson is still part of that legacy. But, mm. you know, they're the outliers. They're the, they're the liars. <laughs> but, um, yeah, yeah, for sure. So you'll, you'll take from Prince and then maybe you'll leave it behind and find something else. You know, there's a, a non-binary, cross-gender, you know. There's always been, not always, but as long as I've read about it, there's drag. But the styles are different now. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And drag is not the same thing as being a trans performer. So, you know, every literal possibility, you know, physical, uh, medical, cultural, historical, political, opens up or is pushed by aesthetic possibilities, don't you think? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I'm always I'm always interested in the specific place and time and the idea that there might be certain archetypes that recur, but they're always they're in a different social, political, artistic context. Yes. So it's never just even if something sounds very, very similar, it's never it's the ne- same. That's right. That's right. That's right. And on the simplest level, it's a rearrangement or a remake, but on it on a deeper level, mm. it's it's literally um, a, re- a creation anew with certain looks backward. Now, I know with this that you wanted to, you know, your next book after Negro Land, you wanted, wasn't going to be, you know, just a conventional memoir, you know, picking it up. As a exactly, re- sequentially. Or, as a, I mean, as a reader, do those sorts of straight 
memoirs kind of turn you off or or is it just as a writer like you don't mind other people doing them but you don't want to take that <laughs> it's a very good it's a very interesting question no there are memoirs that move with you know as with novels you yeah. know to reject a galvanic basically chronologically ordered you know memoir would be like nope don't want to read um, 19th century novels, even if it's, you know, a great Dickens. This is one thing great, after another. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Oh, please. But I knew it wasn't going, to, it wasn't what I wanted to do as a writer. And I didn't really think, of course, I could have made it faithful to my experience, but I didn't really think at the kind of granular psychological um, and performative performative level that it was true in, um, altogether to my experience. You know, I felt... Um, I was raised, I was raised in a world where one performed um, a number of roles um, Mm. simultaneously or in quick sequence. Um, I lived through, and that was just the accident of history, you know, enormous changes between the 50s and, let's say, the late 60s and 70s. Mm. You know, so, you know, I had to take all of that in. And that ruptures, you know, historical change, even if it seems to be chronologically, it ruptures very much um, individual. You know, you're remaking yourself. You're questioning yourself anew all of a sudden, quickly. You know, you're acting out wildly. Then, you know, you're turning against. Then you're, you know, reconfiguring. So, yeah, it needed to be more more driven in multiple, in more than one direction than chronology was going to give me because it d- didn't feel as if it had always been orderly or even yes. still was. Yeah. And your self-interrogation, I think, is very exacting in the same way that you were saying about you're interrogating Willa Cather and, you're, and, you're, and you're, you're, you're not ruthless, but you're not kind of pulling your punches. And it seems like you do that with yourself. It's part of the purpose of, of writing these things to sort of, you know, to examine those things like what stories am I telling myself that might not be true? Oh, absolutely. Um, and if they're not true, first of all, that's, that's important because the form is memoir. We know there's fancy and invention in a memoir, nevertheless. You know? yeah. So part of it was to, you know, really kind of clear out for myself as a writer, but also for the reader, you know, what, how, uh, you know, how clear is this space? But it was also to, with my earlier book, Negroland, I, I, I was stymied and stuck on going forward until I realized that I could bring the critics' tools of probing, examining, Mm -hmm. questioning um, to the story and to myself, and that they could serve a dramatic (laughs) as well as um, an intellectual purpose. So I don't know whether you're already writing something else or sort of thinking about something. Do you think it it is like another another angle on memoir, another way of looking past it, something else? Very much another angle on memoir because I'm thinking of something that's collaborative, working not two writers in one voice, but two voices and turning our eyes and voices and differences in our historical experience and aesthetic and all of that um, onto you know, this material. But that's, that's as much yeah, that's yeah, as well, I know sure. now. Yeah. It's always a mean question to ask when someone's finished a book, which is no easy feat. Yeah, like, no. What's but your next trick? I'm thinking yeah. About, yeah, okay, right. Justify. Yeah. Justify yourself. That's right. So that's what, that's what I'm thinking of. So formally, if it's two voices and having to find, you know, collaboration and contention in an interesting tonal and structural way, that's already a new kind of challenge. Um, 
you know, the differences, the very, the meanings of the differences in our perspectives and our mm. histories and legacies, that's another kind of challenge. Yeah. And the competitiveness, which, you know, one is not thinking of now, but <laughs> how can you turn, you know, the competitiveness, um, as actors and dancers are very good at doing, and yeah. musicians too, but how do you turn that to, to good account? When they're, you know, a couple of you, um, not just the single playwright being my being mimetic. Yeah. So yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me, Margaret oh, Jefferson. Thank you. It was it was a pleasure. It was fun. Yeah. Constructing a nervous system is published by Granter. And thanks to you for listening. If you enjoyed our conversation, please help spread the word by telling a friend or giving us a five star rating on iTunes. Take care and see you soon. Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich, Jacob Archbold and Alex Reese, with assistant production from Alina Ganatra. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. Podmasters.